Titus chapter 2. took a look at the uh, letter that was placed in the mailboxes. Uh, Some of you may have seen that. We're going to be doing a few sermons here over the next several weeks, a few on biblical womanhood and the calling that God has upon women in the church. We're going to be doing a few sermons on identity, thinking about identity in Christ, and we'll be thinking about that a little bit later. Uh, We're going to be unpacking tonight really just the first verse of Titus chapter 2, and then in coming weeks uh, we'll look in more detail about what Paul says to Timothy in regards to uh, women, and we will be unpacking that tonight as well. But tonight we'll be thinking about how God calls women to learn sound doctrine and how that is such an important and vital role that they play in the household of God. So let us hear, we'll read the whole chapter of Titus 2, and then as I said tonight, we'll be unpacking mainly just the first verse. So let us hear from God's holy word. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, and everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. So why this series or a small series here on biblical womanhood? Well, a few reasons, but it basically boils down to this. Uh, We... At this church, from the elders on down, we are committed to a traditional reading of Scripture on gender roles in the church and in the home. We believe that the clear teaching of Scripture is that men are to fill the offices of elder and deacon and teaching elder or minister. 
But the problem with that is when you take that position nowadays, many people in the church and in the world will see you not only as old-fashioned, but perhaps chauvinistic and demeaning. Many people will think that such a position would say that women have no crucial role in the life of the church, that uh, someone who would say such things would say that women should be doing nothing other than being barefoot in the kitchen, as the saying goes. So I want to address all of that with this series. Uh, It's not simply going to be looking at the texts in Scripture that people go to to argue about uh, do do men occupy the offices of the church or can women, but rather what we're aiming to do is show that God has a robust vision for what he calls women to do and who he calls them to be in Christ and in the church. And so we need to understand that and we need to seek to live it out both as women and as men, to understand what God has said, or as future men or future women. And going about this series in this kind of way, what I am aiming to do is showing that the quote-unquote old way of reading Scripture is not to keep women in check, but rather for their good so that they might flourish as God has designed them to do. So as biblical Christians who read scripture in this more traditional and historic way, we are aiming to show that God has this robust vision for what women are to do, what they are to be learning, how they are to be contributing to the life of the church. So God's will for women in Christ is not merely to sit at home, cook, clean, and never engage your mind and never to have a voice. That's not it at all. Rather, women are called in the household of God to be, and here are the three things I'm going to uh, unpack over the next several weeks, called to be lifelong learners, teachers, and trainers for the glory of God. So we'll unpack all of those things. But I want to focus also on what I read, something I read this week by Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth, and she uh, talks about being a Titus II woman, and she describes it this way, to be adorned with the gospel and to adorn the beauty of the gospel in others. That really captures what I believe the the biblical vision for women in the church is, to be adorned with the gospel and to adorn the beauty of the gospel in others. In other words, to have uh, such a, a vision of life that is shaped by what Jesus Christ has done for you, that the way that you are living for Christ and for his glory is so infectious that God is working through you so that others might be encouraged and built up in the faith as well. To be a beautiful woman of God, a beautiful woman in Christ, adorned by the gospel and adorning the gospel in others. God calls women to a vibrant life in Christ, which is a combination of learning and teaching and encouraging and building others up for his glory. Before we get into fleshing out some of that vision, however, we'll uh, want to make clear where uh, we come from in terms of defining our position on some of these issues. So as I mentioned, one strategy for a series like this would be to go to a place like 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Timothy 3 and say, here is where God says in the New Testament that the offices of elder and deacon are reserved for men only. And so that's not what we're going to do. Uh, I want to give 
more of a positive vision in a sense to recapture the imaginations of people to show that God still has a robust calling upon women for life in the church. But we should understand and recognize that God's word does say just that that the offices of elder and deacon are reserved for men. One of the things that we put in that letter in your mailboxes would draw your attention to a statement. It was called the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And here's what it says, one of the main affirmations of this statement. It says this, The Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, manifests the equally high value and dignity which God attached to the roles of both men and women. Both Old and New Testaments affirm the principle of male headship in the family and in the covenant community. So it goes on to say this. In the family, husbands should forsake harsh and selfish leadership and grow in love and care for their wives. Wives should forsake resistance to their husband's authority and grow in willing, joyful submission to their husband's leadership. It's a good, concise statement on Uh, gender roles in the home. And here is in the church, and this is really where we'll be focusing. In the church, redemption in Christ gives men and women an equal share in the blessings of salvation. Nevertheless, some governing and teaching roles within the church are restricted to men. This position is assumed in our confessional standards, and obviously, as we believe together as the elders, it is the clear teaching of Scripture. But this teaching has come under harsh criticism in recent years. But, as the people of God, shaped by the word of God, underneath the authority of God, you know, it makes me, when I say something like that, it makes me think of uh, J.I. Packer. He said, as a, a preacher of God's word, the most important thing that you must communicate to the people who are hearing your preaching is you need to give the sense that the Bible is between you and them. Whatever you're saying needs to be deeply rooted in Scripture such that what you are saying is is you are standing behind the Bible and not in front of it. It's not your ideas. It is what God has already said. And so as people standing underneath the authority of God's Word need to be very careful, very courageous, and very strong in saying that our positions do not shift based on what is going on with the world around us. And so, for instance, in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul affirms the headship of men in the church and he appeals all the way back to creation, all the way to the book of Genesis to say, this is where I find it rooted in Scripture. And he says in chapter 3, talking about the qualifications for elder, and there are all kinds of character qualifications, things that an elder needs to show forth and the kind of godliness that an elder is to have. And then Paul says that an elder is to be the husband of one wife. The construction in the Greek there is really a phrase that means one woman man. An elder is to be a one woman man. And the Greek word there, andra, is the word for man. In other words, this is to be a man. People do all kinds of uh, textual gymnastics to try to get around this. What way is it culturally situated? In what way does this verse no longer apply to us? Is Paul just saying that it's somebody who's married to one person and that's what he is communicating? But no, this text, if we study it, if we open it up, and if we get to what Paul is saying here, he's saying an elder is to be a man. And then, of course, we see this same exact formula showing up when it comes to deacon. A deacon is to be a one-woman man. 
And so we see there, that's just one example, and we could go on and on, but just to lay out, this is where we're coming from as a church, seeing that these offices are reserved for men. That's a quick explanation of where we stand on these issues. I believe that that position is important. It's probably not the majority position in the church today. It's certainly not the majority position in our denomination today, but we are committed to that position because we see it springing forth from Scripture. So with the rest of the time tonight, I want to give positive expression to these three ideas that we talk about with God's vision for women. Women are to be learners of Scripture. That's what we'll focus on tonight. Learners of Scripture and theologians. title tonight is Everyone is a Theologian. You can't get away from doing theology. You can't get away from believing something, of having some kind of doctrine that defines not only where you stand, but also the way that you live your life in Christ. So here's our central truth this evening. All disciples of Jesus are to learn, know, and live out the doctrine that is expressed in Scripture. This high calling is one given to both men and to women. Thus, women are to be, are to be committed to developing sound doctrine in faith and in life. It is no less a responsibility for women, but an essential part of who they are in Christ. It is no less a responsibility for women to know and to learn and to develop sound doctrine. It is essential to who they are in Christ. If women are committed to learning and knowing and treasuring sound doctrine, they will be on their way to being Titus to women, adorned with the gospel and adorning the gospel in others. Truly beautiful and lasting ways for the glory of of God. First idea tonight, doctrine is unavoidable. Doctrine is unavoidable. Titus 2 begins with a very simple command by Paul commanding something to Titus. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Of course, Titus was a leader in the church, preaching and teaching with all authority. That was Paul's command to him. You must teach what accords with sound doctrine. You may have heard somebody say at one point or another, talking about their, about their church, they'll say something like, at our church we don't worry about doctrine, we just love Jesus. That's a common sentiment nowadays, right? Uh, no creed but Christ, no confession but the Bible. The irony, of course, is that that becomes a creed and a confession, right? No creed but Christ, no confession but the Bible. Some of you may think that doctrine is something only for theologians and for seminary students. And uh, seminary students tend to get a uh, little bit excited about these things. As certainly I remember going to seminary and being all fired up about uh, learning all of these new things about doctrine. But it is not true that doctrine is just for them. It's not true that doctrine is just for theologians clo behind closed door in their studies. It is for all of Jesus' followers to know what we believe and to know why we believe it. It's, it's unavoidable. Doctrine is unavoidable. It's also important to note that many of the heretics in the history of the church, what were the things that they would say? They would say, we have no confession but the Bible. We're ready to affirm all of the words of Scripture, but when it comes to uh, expressing that in a written confession or a written creed, that was when they said, I can't do that. Right? And that's why the church from its earliest days wrote down what it believed and expressed it in creeds. 
Every Christian claims to believe Scripture. What matters is what they actually mean when they say they believe Scripture. And all people have doctrine that defines them and defines the way that they live their life. Not only Christians, but even atheists. Atheists have something that they believe, and that shapes the way that they live their life. News reporters, what they do is fueled by what they believe. Doctrine is unavoidable. Secondly, doctrine is essential. Doctrine is not only unavoidable, but doctrine is essential. If you are going to climb up a ladder, and uh, say you're, you're setting up a ladder on a precipice and there's a steep drop-off, what are you going to do? You're going to make sure that the, do- that the ladder is set up and it is sturdy. It's laid out, it's locked in place, it is sturdy so that you can climb up. That is basically what doctrine is. It's that process of making sure that the ladder is in place and it's locked and it's not going to tumble over when you climb up the ladder. Climbing up the ladder is like the Christian life. You see, if you do not have correct biblical doctrine, you will fail in the Christian life. The word that we translate as sound in Titus 2 Teach what accords with sound doctrine. That word for sound is a word that means healthy. It's not always wise to think about uh, what English words have sprung forth from Greek. Sometimes there are different nuances and different meanings that can cloud it. But the word, our word hygiene comes from this Greek word. It means basically well-functioning or in good health. You might think of a sound heart. What is a sound heart? One that pumps the proper amount of blood the proper amount of times. The result of a sound heart is a body which is healthy and is able to function well. The result of sound doctrine is a well-functioning Christian. You can think of good doctrine as good soil. Another illustration, good soil. If you plant a seed in good soil, if you give it what it needs, it will grow. Likewise, if you plant yourself in the soil of good doctrine, you will grow into a well-functioning and sound Christian. Some of you may be saying, well, yes, but in the book of Titus, Paul is calling Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's saying, you, Titus, as the pastor of your congregation, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And that is true, but you need to ask the question, why does Paul say that to Titus? He says to Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine because he wants all of the believers under the teaching of Titus to have sound doctrine, to believe what is right, and to live a life that accords with all of those beliefs. So doctrine is essential. Doctrine is unavoidable. Now, for most of the rest of tonight, I'd like to comment on why good doctrine is essential, particularly for women. In the book of 2 Timothy, yet another pastoral epistle, Paul gives Timothy a very serious warning about false teachers, why he must rebuke them, why he must combat them if they come into the church. He says this in 2 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7. He says, For among them, these false teachers, are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. We read that short passage. You come across that phrase, weak women, and maybe it causes you to flinch a little bit. But Paul is not making a blanket statement about all women. 
He's not saying that they all are weak. This is a word that could mean gullible, uh, but it's actually literally a word that means small or little. What Paul is talking about here is women who, in, in that context, in Timothy's context, were being manipulated by false teachers. And it's likely that these women who were being manipulated by false teachers were not working class women, so they weren't out working all of the time. They had some leisure time to themselves. And they did not have the discernment when these false teachers would come and teach something in their homes. They did not have the discernment to ward all off false teaching. And so Paul is not saying that all women are weak or little. Rather, he is saying that all women should endeavor to be the kind of woman disciple and follower of Christ who will not be led astray by false teaching. To know your doctrine and to know sound doctrine and to be able, even within yourself, to recognize when false teaching comes along. Amy Bird comments on just what these women were like. She says, weak women are satisfied with half-truths because they are already invested in their sin. They are attracted to a counterfeit, to something that appears godly, but doesn't embrace all of God's truth. Another commenter says this, these these were female believers whose spiritual immaturity, not yet brought to maturity by the word of truth, are more easily seduced by false appearance. We might also ask, why is it that this situation seemed to be repeating itself enough to make Paul mention it here? And I think in order to to answer that question, you've got to go back to the beginning. And you have to ask, why were false teachers gaining a foothold in the church through this way? They were circling out, they were finding certain women, certain kinds of women... And then that was creating this situation in the church. In order to get that answer, I believe, you have to go back to the beginning. In the book of Genesis, God says that it's not good for man to be alone. And he says he is going to make what for Adam? He's going to make a helper that is suitable for him. Now when we read that, we read our English translation and we read the word helper, what do we think? What really comes to mind is we say, okay, so... In that situation, it's almost like man was able to live on his own. Adam could have made it on his own, but God said, it's not really ideal, so I'm going to create someone who will make it a little bit nicer for him. Someone who will make life a little bit better for him. He gives woman to man because she's nice enough to have around. But that is really not the meaning of the Hebrew word helper at all. The Hebrew word is azer. That's not what that word means at all. The word means necessary ally. It's someone who is absolutely necessary in order to fulfill a mission, in order to to carry out a purpose for which someone is appointed. In other words, the purpose for which, uh, uh, or which God appointed for Adam to do, that was not going to be fulfilled without woman being created for the man. She is a necessary ally, not something that is just nice to have around. God himself is actually called the Azer of Israel, the helper of Israel. Psalm 33.10, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. It's it's almost like they're saying he is our salvation. Don't stand a chance without this necessary ally. And so if this is the role that women were designed to fulfill, to be the necessary ally for man, 
Is it any wonder why Satan went to Eve first in Genesis? Because he was tearing down the exact system that God had set up for the good of both man and woman. He was deconstructing the very thing that God had constructed so that the human race might flourish. And in Paul and Timothy's day, this was the same thing that was happening. Satan was trying to get into the church through certain women who would be convinced of false teaching and then use their influence in their homes and their families to perpetuate it. So Paul's call to Timothy is to do what? To teach sound doctrine. To exhort and to reprove and to combat error. False teaching is a danger for men as well. There are all kinds of weak men out there. There is no doubt about it. But this text is dealing with this issue. And it's interesting, isn't it? If you walk through a a Christian bookstore today and you go to the women's section, it's amazing. You can see all kinds of books written by both men and women, but for women. And you can tell, even by the cover and the back cover and inside the flaps, you can tell how much they are riddled with bad doctrine. Just like in Genesis 3, just like in Ephesus, in the book of 2 Timothy, today Satan is up to his old tricks. Amy Bird comments once again, and I was just really blessed as I started out on this study by reading uh, these books by these solid Uh, biblical women like Amy Bird being one of them and Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth, who I uh, quoted earlier. But Amy Bird says this, Sisters, neighbors, wives, and mothers tend to be the cultivators in household relationships. We, that's you, because I'm not, but they, women, are gifted with a tenderness to loosen hardened egos, as well as a firm strength to destroy the weeds that may infect our families. Women have a way of multitasking these relational gifts in beautiful harmony when they are in accord with healthy doctrine. Beautiful picture, isn't it? And the strength and the giftedness that God has given to women. Then she goes on to say, But our influence can be devastating to a family when we are self-serving and manipulative. So women have a high calling. There is so much that God has given them to do, but the the foundation of it all needs to be sound doctrine. If the ladder is not in place, if it's not locked and made secure, it will topple over. Timothy himself was actually a wonderful example of the positive influence of godly women. He was raised by his grandmother and his mother. And Paul tells Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy to remember all of those things which you have known, he says, from infancy. Paul had a high regard for uh, the women who had raised Timothy, his mother and his grandmother. They had raised him well. They had taught him sound doctrine. And because of the sound doctrine that they had taught him, he became a great leader in the church. It is essential. Sound doctrine is essential for both men and for women. You see tonight how particularly there is this beautiful calling that God has upon women to learn and to know and to treasure sound doctrine. Lastly, doctrine is transformational. Doctrine is transformational. It changes us. Nancy Wolgamuth goes on to comment, Sound doctrine is transformational. It changes everything about us. It's like an onboard guidance system directing and determining our course. It's 
like those screens we have now in the middle of our cars that tell us every single turn that we have to make. We know exactly where, how to get there and how long it's going to take. That is what sound doctrine is. It gets us to where we need to go. Women are designed to be allies and followers of Jesus. When they are steeped in healthy doctrine, they contribute to the health of a church in ways that many churches never experience. I truly believe that this is a gift to the church, that if it is unpacked, and if it is known, if, is, if it is learned, and there is time spent on these things, this is a gift to the church, providing for its health in ways that many churches never experience. It's not just for married women. Married women who certainly see themselves fulfilling the positive role in the home and the church, and that quote that we read earlier, uh, married women probably see and feel that each and every day. But it's also vital for single women, young and old widowed or never married, to understand this, to become spiritual mothers and daughters to those around them. Sound doctrine is a gift, and, is, and that gift needs to be cultivated so that it can be shared. A life will be changed. A life will be changed when God is understood to be sovereign over all. If a woman understands and is fiercely committed to the sovereignty of God in all of life, her life will be changed and the lives of those around her, if they pay heed to her words, those lives will be changed. In such circumstances, when hard times come upon someone who knows the sovereignty of God, the tenderness of women to deal with the pain, the kind of tenderness that most men just don't have, that can be accompanied by a fierce trust in the God who has the whole world in his hands. Knowing sound doctrine about sin will change the way that you see the world and what it so desperately needs. Knowing sound doctrine about the cross and redemption will change the way that you view others and the way that you forgive others who may have hurt you and the way that you view yourself as one loved and treasured in Christ because of what he has done for you. Knowing sound doctrine about a believer's struggles with sin will allow a realistic yet hope-filled and loving embrace of the spiritual struggle that all Christians are called to each and every day. You see, sound doctrine leads from the what to the now what. Insofar as it changes us, it changes our lives. It can and it must do so. Thus women are called to grow in the word of God and to obey it. And in so doing are enabled to do so much that God calls them to do in their lives and in the church. A church without doctrinally solid, sound women is not going to be a healthy church. Everyone in the church, everyone is a theologian. You cannot avoid it. What a healthy church needs is for men and women to have sound doctrine. All that we do is lived before the face of God. And good theology, good doctrine is learning how to live in the presence of God. That's what good sound doctrine is. Learning to live properly in God's presence. We will fail and we will fall at times. But the good news is that as we grow in our sound doctrine and our understanding of the word and our understanding of God and the gospel, we are learning about the God who saves us by his grace apart from works. 
As we learn more, we partake in something of eternal significance. For Jesus says that eternal life is knowing God, growing in our knowledge of God, growing in our knowledge of the gospel. So there are bumps along the way. But as you are growing in sound doctrine, what is it about being a a Titus 2 woman, as we have been talking about tonight? It is a woman who is adorned by the gospel, adorned by the gospel of grace, saved by Jesus Christ, the one who came down from heaven, who lived and who died for his own, to make you his own, and to trust in him all of your days. So we take great joy that women, just like men, will share in the eternal life of the new heavens and the new earth. Thus, the beginning of their calling now is to learn and to grow in their knowledge of the God who saves by his grace and to do all of this for his glory and to know and to embrace that God has such a great calling upon your life in the church for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We adore you as the living God. We thank you for how you are shaping and molding us by your spirit. We thank you for sanctification, for the gift of growing in grace. And so, Father, we ask that tonight, as we gather around your word, as we sing these praises, Father, Father, we ask that it all might have gone to the honor and the glory of your name, the furtherance of your kingdom. And Father, we ask that you would give us strength for the day and for this coming week, that we might always live for you, that we might walk with Jesus all of our days. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's finish by singing.